where we're going to start at. Yeah, Second Kings three. So I, last night I I waited up a little bit to watch the return, but at a certain point I realized things were not going to end. Last night it was going to carry on beyond today. So I went ahead and went to bed, and I got up this morning, was getting around and doing my morning routine things, and so I checked to see how things were going with the election or how things were going in the world. And, of course, the election issue was first and foremost with lots of news reports explaining things that had changed in the night and where the... No, verses 4, I'm sorry, chapter 4, not 3. Uh, no, it is 3. Never mind. I'll get it right in a second. Um, things were going with that. It was still undecided. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I mean, long time. I remember in 2000, of course, it, I went to bed with George Bush as president and I woke up the next morning and it was undecided again. So that was things that had changed in the night. I remembered that. And then as I was looking at that, a friend sent me a blog post uh, published today by a guy I occasionally read, a guy named Tim Chalice. And yesterday his son, his college-age son, just suddenly died. They were playing a game and he just fell over and died. They, at the time of the writing and reading, they had no answers to know why he died or what was going on in his life. And then I got a, another text a little bit after that about something going on with the election. And then a little bit after that I got another text about something bad going on in somebody's church. Their member of their fa- church family was really struggling. And, and, and there was just this period of time where I was getting information about the election and the world situation, what was going on, and then these local things that were happening in individual people's lives. So typically they were terrible and bad things. And it happened over a couple of hours, not over a couple of seconds. I mean, it wasn't like it was Job's, parent, Job's uh, getting the information. It was over a period of a couple of hours. But it was just these jarring contrasts that were happening. There was this big world thing, and then there were these small, that won't make the news, but they are crisis in people's lives no different uh, than anything else. And it reminded me of something from my Bible reading a couple of weeks ago. So we're going to depart from Psalms, and we're going to look at, at a series of contrasts from Second Kings 3, 4, part of 5. Uh, and the contrast, I've titled the message Mountains and Valleys, and that will make more sense in just a minute. And we're going to do kind of like what we did Sunday and just look through it instead of read it and talk about it all. We're just going to kind of walk our way through this. Now, as we start in these chapters, we're going to see a series of contrasts that I'm calling Mountain and Valley Contrast. And we start in chapter 3 on the mountain with two kings. King Jehoram of Israel or Samaria, King Jehoshaphat of Judah. Uh, this is obviously well after the time of the split of the two nations, and these two kings are going to work together. Now we see in verse 1 of chapter 3, Jehoram was the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. He reigned 12 years. He wrought evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father, nor like his mother, For he put away the image of Baal that his father had. Nevertheless, he cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therein. So he is the son of Ahab. He is the second son of Ahab to ascend the throne. The first son died. He had no heir. So Jehoram takes the place. He comes as king in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat's reign. As he is coming up, he is going to be evil, much like his father and much like his mother, but somewhat different. He is not going to be a bell worshiper as they were. Instead, 
He is going to, the Bible says in the King James, cleave to the sins of Jeroboam. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament story, you know what happened was when the nation was split into two, Jeroboam took ten tribes and he went over here. Rehoboam took two tribes and they stayed over here. And things went along well where they were separated until it was time for the sacrifice. And the people from the ten over here called Israel, they began to go to migrate over to Jerusalem and they were going to make their sacrifices there in the temple as they were supposed to. Jeroboam fearing the people would go over to Israel, go over to Judah. They would see the temple. They would worship God there and they would stay there. He built a golden calf. In fact, I think he built two golden calves and he set them up and he did kind of what Aaron did in Exodus. And he said, behold, O Israel, here is your God. And essentially what he said was there's no need to go to Jerusalem to worship God. Our God's here with us. And so that became a besetting sin in Samaria, in the ten nations, the ten tribes called Israel or Samaria. And so what happened with Jehoram is he didn't go after Baal and the gods of the land as his mom and dad had. Rather, what he did was he went back to their ancestry worship of the golden calves Jeroboam had made. Now, it goes on in verse 4. And Mesa, the king of Moab, was a sheep master and rendered to the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs, a hundred thousand rams with the wool. But it came to pass when Ahab was dead, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So at some point, Ahab puts Moab to tribute. And a part of their yearly tribute, they were to send one hundred thousand lambs, one hundred thousand rams and all the wool that went with it. Well, Ahab dies, and Moab determines this is a good time to rebel against this, this taxing that is unjust in his eyes, I'm sure. So Jehoram determines he is going to go to war. King Jehoram went out of Samaria at the same time and numbered all of Israel. And he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab hath rebelled against me. Wilt thou go to battle with me against Moab? Jehoshaphat said, I will go up with thee. I am as thou art my people, as thou people, and my horses as thy horses. And so Jehoshaphat determines he will go up with him. Now, Jehoshaphat is actually related to King Jehoram by marriage. Jehoshaphat's son, also named Jehoram, has married Ahab's daughter. Um, What was her name? Her name was, I think, like Athalia. And so they are, in, they are related by marriage. And so this is a family problem. And so the godly king Jehoshaphat, he yokes up with the ungodly king Jehoram. And he determines to, to go to war with Moab over sheep. And, right, and that's, so that's what we're seeing here. Is Jehoram is going to war. And he's got Jehoshaphat enlisted to go with him. And they're going to war with Moab over sheep. And the rest of the chapter deals with how the the battle goes um, and how God gives them the victory. And we're not going to look at that. So this is a picture of on the mountain. On the mountain, the kings dwell. On the mountain, the kings make their policies. They forge their alliances. They plan and they wage their wars. That's on the mountain. That's sort of a up top. Big time issue things. Now turn to chapter five, chapter four, Second Kings chapter four, and we go from the mountain into the valley. 
Now, there, there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead. And thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord, and the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. So here we have in the valley a simple widow with a tremendous problem. Her husband had been part of the school of the prophets, but had now died. And in this day, it was very difficult for a widowed woman to be able to provide for herself. If her children were not grown and able to provide for themselves and her, it often left them destitute. It seems in this, her children were not old enough to be out on their own, to be married. And so they were not able to provide for her. So her husband is dead. The bills that he has to pay are still due. And she has no money to pay the bills. And she is caught between a rock and a hard place. Well, it was a common practice in this day that if someone could not pay their debts, they would be sent to debtor's prison. Or they would be enslaved to work off the debt. And there was a, an order, from what I understand, on how this was done. First, their land and their stuff was taken and was sold. Then the family was taken and sent into debtor's prison or debtor's enslavement where they would work. And then the person themselves would be taken as a slave. Now, according to Israelite law, there was only a certain amount of time that you could keep a fellow Israelite a slave. Six years. And then the seventh year, they had to be freed. But, of course... If you've been had all your stuff taken, all your stuff sold, all your kids sold, there's not a whole lot to go back to. So her husband, one of the prophets, died. Debt has come due. She has no money. Her children are about to be taken and sold into slavery. So she goes to Elijah for help. She reminds Elisha of who her husband was. He's a son of the prophets. In other words, he was in the school of the prophets. He was kind of a good man, I think is what she is saying there. And she goes to him and she says, help. Right? Elisha at this point is the heir to Elijah. He is the main prophet of God. And so what she's doing in a lot of ways is she's going to God for help. Right? If you needed God's help, Elisha was the go-to man to get to because Elisha had the anointing of Elijah, and so therefore miracles could be done at his hand. When he prayed, things happened. She knew if there was help, it would be from God, and Elisha was the guy. So Elisha says unto her, What shall I do for thee? Tell me, what hast thou in the house? And she said, Thine handmaiden has not anything in the house, save a pot of oil. And then he said, Go borrow thee vessels abroad of all thy neighbors, even empty vessels, and borrow not a few. And when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons, and thou shalt pour out into all the vessels, and thou shalt set aside that which is full. So she went out from him, shut the door, and upon her sons, and brought the vessels to her, and she poured out. Right? So he says, what do you have at the house? How can I help you? She's got a pot of olive oil, essentially is all she has to her name. Now, which is good. Olive oil is not necessarily super expensive. But it is something everybody needs and everybody uses and somebody will buy. So Elisha tells her, go borrow all the pots and all the pans and all the vessels you can from all of your neighbors. When you've got every pot you can, you go into your house, you shut the door and you just pour. And when one is full, you set it aside and then you begin to pour another. And you do that until all the vessels are full. Verse 6, she comes to pass, she does it. The vessels were full. 
She said to her son, bring me yet a vessel. And he said unto her, there is not a vessel more. And the oil stayed. So she pours and pours and pours and pours. So it gets to the point where unknowingly she fills the very last vessel. And her son tells her there's not any more. And at that point, the oil stops. And there's a great sermon there, but we don't have time for that because it's not the point for tonight. But, but just let me throw out a, something. If there had been more vessels, there could have been more oil. I wonder how often there could be more blessings and more stuff in our life. But we're constricted by how much we can receive. And we need to expand. We need to grow. We need to be stretched. But anyway, that's not what we're doing tonight. So it stops. She goes to Elijah, verse 7, and says, what do I do? He says, take the oil, pay the debt, and then, or take the oil, sell it, pay the debt, and whatever you have left, live off of. So she goes and she does it, and things happen well for her. Now look at verse 8 through 37. In this, I'm going to go through it really quickly because it's a long passage. I'll just sort of tell the story here. In Elisha's travels as a prophet, doing whatever it was prophets did, he went periodically across the property of a woman who was a great woman, the King James says. So it probably means she was wealthy or notable and her husband. And they would invite him in and they would say, come and, and stay with us. And then they would provide him a meal while he was there. And after he did that several times, they said, his wife said, I think we should just basically give him a room. Build him a room, give him a room so that when he comes through, he always has a place to stay. Well, Elisha being grateful. That he doesn't have to sleep out on the ground by a campfire. Has a room to sleep at. Food provided for him. He says, he asked his servant, he says, what can we do to her? And his servant says, well, she doesn't have a kid. They don't have a, a, a child. So Elisha sends word to her. She will have a son in about a year's time. Now, she's fearful of this. She's afraid of getting her hopes up. Because having a child was a really important thing in, in, in any age. But in this generation, it was a sign of God's favor. It was a way to pass on the inheritance. It was really, really significant. right? Like in, in our day, people often choose not to have kids. But in their day, no one did that. right? No one would just choose not to have children. So for her not to have a child, it could be seen as a shame to the family. It, it could be seen... As something where God was angry at them. And so a child would, would, would just kind of elevate her more in the eyes of her community. She's afraid. Elisha's telling her something's going to get her hopes up and it's not going to come to pass. But it does come to pass. About a year later, she has a child. And verse 17, the woman conceived, bare a son, according to the time. Verse 18, the child was grown and he went out to work with his father. He said, my head, my head. And he fell. The, the dad had him carried back to the mother. The mother held him in her knees until he died. So he died in his mother's arms years later. She gets up. She seeks after Elisha. And she goes to look for him. Elisha sees her coming in the distance. And he sends his servant, go see what's going on with her. What's wrong? Well, she won't talk to the servant at all. So she comes to Elisha. She tells him her son has died. Elisha gives his servant his staff and says, go lay the staff on the boy and, and see what happens. And so the servant takes off, but the woman won't leave. I, I'm not going anywhere, she says, unless you go with me. So Elisha gets up. He goes, he lays on the boy and he prays for the boy and the boy comes back to life. Because again, what she's seeking, she's 
She's seeking God. And Elisha is the guy to go to for that. And Elisha comes, and in the name of God, through the power of God, he resurrects this boy, and he goes up and lives the rest of his life out a normal life. Then there's one more story here, verse 38 through 44. Elisha came again to Gilgal, and there was a dearth in the land. And the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, and he said to his servant, Set out a great pot, and seed the pottage for the sons of the prophets. And one went out in the field to gather herbs, and found a wild vine, and gathered thereof wild gourds, his lap full, and came and shred them into the pot of pottage, for they knew them not. And he poured them out for the men to eat, and it came to pass as they were eating the pottage. They cried out, and they said, O thou man of God, there's death in this pot. And they could eat not thereof. So, they're in a famine. But it's time to eat. Elisha sends them out to make something. One of the guys goes out to gather stuff. He was never a boy scout, so he doesn't know the good stuff from the bad stuff. He gathers bad stuff, tosses it in the pot. They start to eat. Somehow they realize it was poisonous and it was bad. Elisha says, get some meal. He gets it. He casts it in the pot. And they go on and eat it. And there's no more harm. Now do you see the contrast forming? In 2 Kings 3... There is kings making war for sheep. In 2 Kings 4, there are people, ordinary people, in the valley suffering greatly. And then we look at one more in chapter 5. And this one I think is really interesting. And because in chapter 5 we see, I think, the mountains and the valleys intersect. Now Naaman in verse 5 Captain of the host of the king of Syria was a great man with his master, honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance to Syria. But he was also, and he was also a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. So here we see a man on the mountain. He is the general of Syria's army. He is probably a, a, a great advisor to the king. He is someone with influence. He is someone with power. When the kings determined to wage their war on the mountains, Naaman is the guy from the mountain who goes out and fights that battle. But Naaman has a valley-type problem. He is a leper. Now the problem with leprosy is at this point in time in history, it was 100% fatal 100% of the time. So the question wasn't, is this going to kill Naaman? It was. The question is, when is this going to kill? To kill Naaman. There's no help. There's no hope. There's nothing they can do. But Naaman has. His wife has a little maid. Says in the King James. From Israel. And she says unto her mistress in verse 3. Would God that my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria. For he would recover him. From his leprosy. Now if you notice. The kings are on their mountains. And the prophet is with the people down in the valley. So she tells him. I wish this mountain guy would go to the valley where the prophet of God is and there would be help for him there. So Naaman, though, because he is a mountain kind of person, he can't imagine going into the valley for help. And so look at what he does. He goes into his king and he said, here's what the, my maid from the land of Israel said. So the king of Syria said, go, uh, go. And I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed. He took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand pieces of gold, ten changes of raiment. And look at where he goes, though. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now, when this letter has come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant unto thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. 
The mountain guy can't fathom there's help not on the mountains. The, the mountain is surely where the answers are. The kings have the answers. The people up high have the answers. Those who, who plot and wage and scheme, that's where the answers lie. So that's who he goes to. But the king of Israel cannot help him. He rends his clothes. He says, my God, to kill and to make a lie that this man doth send to me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore, consider, I pray you, how he seeketh the quarrel against me. There's no help on the mountain for Naaman. But Elisha in the valley hears about it. And he sends word. And he says, he said to verse 8, And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know there is a prophet in Israel. He'll know there is a God who hears, answers, and can do great and mighty things. Naaman comes with his horses and his chariot, stood at the house of the door of uh, the door of the house of Elisha. Elisha doesn't even go out to him. He just sends a messenger. Go out and you tell Naaman to go to the Jordan River, dip in it seven times, and at the seventh time when he comes out, all will be made well. Naaman is furious. He is, after all, a man from the mountains. I mean, he he lives in the presence of kings. And the prophet would not so much as come out to him himself, but sends a messenger and tells him to do something piddly. Go dip in the river and you'll be made well. So he's angry. Uh, It says that he was wroth because he thought Elijah would come out and he would do some big thing. Like mountain people believe everybody ought to act. And he talks about uh, rivers in Damascus that are better than all the rivers of Israel. And one of his servants, and he's going to go home without it, just die. One of his servants says, boy, if he, if he told you to do something really big, you, you would do it. Why not do this very simple thing? Why not just, just try? I mean, what is the worst that can happen from doing what Elisha says to do? Of course, verse 14, he goes down, dips seven times, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh came again like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. The rest of the chapter deals with how he responds to that, which we won't look at. But do you see the contrast in, in these chapters? So I was reading through these chapters in my daily Bible reading a couple of weeks ago. I'm still in Second Kings in my Bible reading. There was just, it seems like there was just this contrast between the world of the kings and the world of the prophets and the regular people. And, and it is what I call the mountain valley contrast because it is so stark. They are not alike. Not that there are literally mountains and valleys, but that the contrasts are so deep. On the mountains, there are kings going to war over sheep. But in the valley, there are ordinary people suffering and on the verge of losing everything. And when people look to the mountain for help, there's no help for them at this time. And as I was reading this, it it almost felt like God was giving an invitation to choose which world. We want to spend our time and our effort in which world we want to make the the focus of our lives. And I was thinking about that again this morning. On the mountain, there is this big presidential election. But in the valley where we are, there are people hurting and dealing with the loss of loved ones. 
On the mountain, there is a a global COVID-19 pandemic and, and how nations must respond. But in the valley, there are people shut in and can't nobody get in to see them. And they're they're afraid and they're lonely. And on the mountain, there are immigration issues. What do we do and how do we do it by the nations? But in the valley, there are people we know enslaved by sin. On the mountain, there is the economy and the economic issues. But in the valley, there are people we know deceived by the devil. On the mountain, there are wildfires and there are riots. But in the valley where we are, there are people beat down by the cares of this life. On the mountain, there's all this stuff we can't change. All this stuff we cannot do anything about. No matter how much we worry or what we say or how much effort we put into it, we can't affect anything that's happening on the mountains. But in the valley, there's an awful lot of people. And we might could make a difference in what's going on in their lives. And it's like Scripture is saying, choose, choose you this day what you'll focus on. Choose where you'll focus your time, your lives, your thoughts, your energy and your actions. But the reality is you and I, we're not mountain people. Gaiman isn't even a mountain city, not even in Oklahoma, much less as far as the world goes we are valley people in a valley town in a valley state no less and we live with regular people who are lost and hurting and enslaved and overwhelmed and struggling and feeling crushed by the cares of life and we have virtually no ability to influence what happens on the mountain at all As far as the election goes, we have done all we could yesterday. Now the rest of it is just going to play out. And no matter what we say or what we do, it will not make a difference. But in the valley, among the people, we have tremendous potential to help those who are there. Not only do we have this potential to help Scripture says we have an obligation to help. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear ye, bear you, bear you, bear you, bear me, one another's burdens. The the word translated as burden there, it, it means something exceeding the strength of those who are under them. So this isn't a minor thing. This is share one another's burdens. When someone is so burdened, they're about to be overcome by it. They can't carry it. It's crushing them. We come alongside and we help them bear those burdens. I'm to help you bear your burdens. You're to help me bear mine. And together we help others bear theirs. And we all... We know people who are burdened beyond measure, out of strength, on the verge of collapse right now. And we, we, 
we have the ability, maybe, to do something. Even if it's just to be there and listen to them gripe and complain and talk and pour out their hurts. Even if it is something minor, we can do something. And we can make a difference here in the valley. We can bear one another's burdens. We can assist them in their time of need. And as we do so, we fulfill the law of Christ. Of course, the law of Christ is love your neighbor as you love yourself. The principle of love toward others fulfills the law of Moses, included in our relationship with one another. When we genuinely love someone, we see their burden, we see their struggle, and we come alongside them and we help them to bear that burden. In the army, when we do road marches and things, we always had to carry heavy packs. And periodically, Mostly we could always do it because it was what we always did. But periodically somebody would hurt themselves. Twist an ankle, fall down. Some reason just wasn't doing well that day. And you know what we never did. Never once when we saw one of our our brothers there struggling under the weight of his pack. Never once did we say, suck it up buttercup and leave them there. But we never left a fallen comrade To the hands of the enemy. That was a part of our creed that we said. We wouldn't have done it. So we came alongside them. And we did what we could to help them bear the burden. We maybe took their pack. Maybe we put them up. Maybe we took stuff out of their pack and put it on. But we did something. We didn't just leave them there. We helped them bear their burdens. As soldiers of Christ, we are no less to do this. We cannot leave our fallen comrades in the hand of the enemy who will use the burden to destroy them, no doubt. And we help them bear it up because, for one reason, wouldn't you want someone to help you bear it up? Do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. If you were beat down, would you want someone to ignore you if they saw it and could help? If you were struggling, would you want someone to leave you alone and let you suffer? If you were deceived, wouldn't you want somebody to tell you the truth? If you were enslaved by sin, wouldn't you want somebody to tell you about the Savior that can set you free? And if we would want that for ourselves, we must do this for others. This is life in the valley. Now, The reality is, the mountaintop issues, they're all that we're hearing about. And and rightly so. I'm not saying mountaintop issues are unimportant. When kings go to war, people from the valley are recruited to be their soldiers and they die in the fight. No doubt. When kings make their plans, it is the people in the valleys that suffer if they're not good ones. I'm not saying what's happening on the mountain is unimportant and we should just pretend like it's piddly issues. They're not. But they're not issues we can affect. They're not issues we can change. They're not issues we can do anything about but gripe and complain or be anxious and fearful to lose sleep and get ulcers over. 
And so the mountaintop issues, they are yelling and they're clamoring for our attention. But we can't do anything about them. We cannot change them at all. But in the valley, there are all these issues. They're all around us. And they're not going to be on the news. They're not going to be talked about on the news because they're not important to the big world. They're not going to yell and clamor for our attention. And so if we're not actively looking for them, we may not see them at all. But if we look to see, and if we're willing to act, typically, we can make a tremendous difference on those issues, on those people, in those situations. We can make a difference on those issues in ways we cannot possibly make a difference on the mountaintop issues. Again, I'm certainly not saying that mountaintop issues are unimportant. What I'm saying is we should focus our efforts on the kind of issues we can actually influence, help, and make better. Let's ensure we're focusing our time, our lives, our energy, and our thoughts on the issues we legitimately have a chance of helping in issues where we can legitimately make a difference in what's going on and in somebody's life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come tonight. We thank you for your word, the guidance it gives to us. We thank you, Lord, for how good and how great and how wonderful you are to send your spirit to speak and to challenge us and to encourage us to go the way you'd have us to go. And Lord, right now, the mountaintop issues are super noisy and they're everywhere we go. And probably in this time of service, we've all gotten multiple alerts on our smartphones about some sort of mountaintop issue. Lord, the reality is we can't help with that. We can't fix that. We can't make anything on the mountains better. But down in the valley, down in the valley, we can sure do some good for your glory. We can do some good in the name of Jesus through the power of your spirit. Help us, O oh God, to focus not on the mountains where we can't do anything, but in the valleys where we live. To see the opportunities that are there. To see the people we can help. To see what we can do to make a difference in these situations. And then let us do it. Be glorified through our lives. Be glorified as we bear one another's burdens. Be glorified as we fulfill the law of Christ and demonstrate your love before a watching in a dying world. Let us live so differently in this. The lost around us would come to us and say, why do you do what you do? Why do you act the way you act? And we would use that opportunity to tell them about the great God and glorious Savior we have. Use us, O oh God, to make a difference in the valley of Guyman, Oklahoma. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.